Welcome to the Quality Meat Scotland podcast. Industry updates and best practice to promote, support, develop and protect the Scottish red meat sector. Hello and thanks very much for downloading this podcast. I'm Mark Stephen. My day job is as a broadcaster, so consequently I tend to watch and listen to a lot of news. Now, most of it comes and goes, but there was one story just a few weeks ago that really stuck out for me. I'll be honest, I can't remember the precise details, but it was a man in his late 30s standing in a warehouse in front of pallets of some sort of product that his company produced. In his right hand, he held two or three sheets of paper. This, he said, is the paperwork we used to have to fill in to send our stuff to Europe. And then he held up his left hand, which had sheaves of paper, reams of the stuff in it, and he said, this is what we have to deal with nowadays. It was a very simple, very vivid illustration of the way real challenges face businesses in the UK, and many of those challenges obviously equally apply to the red meat industry. Joining me today to discuss operational changes after our exit from the European Union are Tom Gibson, Director of Market Development for QMS. Tom manages relationships with Scottish processors, retailers and other industry stakeholders such as Scottish Development International and Scotland Food and Drink, where he sits on the UK Market Development and Export Boards. Hello Tom, how are you this morning? Good morning Mark, I'm fine, thank you very much. Good, glad I am to hear it. And we're also joined by Jill Barber, who works in the Scottish Government's Animal Health and Welfare Division. She's the head of EU Exit Team. Jill started her professional career as a fish scientist, but has found there are many parallels between animal health and fish health policy, particularly in relation to trade access, the importance of maintaining high health status, and of promoting sustainable food production systems. And hello to you, Jill. How are you? Good morning. Well, thank you. Good. Right. Jill, for a start, what have been the operational changes post-Brexit? It's a good question, and I think the short answer is many. (laughs) I'll take you through the long answer. Um, EU exit has essentially seen the removal of Great Britain from the single market and the customs union. So the operational changes introduced as a result are significant. Uh, That is despite the, the trade and cooperation agreement that was created with the EU that does provide for zero tariff and zero quota trade. But the basic nature of the agreement itself and the fact that we've got no alignment with the EU has seen our trading terms change to third country to third country. So that essentially means we've now got customs requirements, VAT, export declarations and safety and security declarations. I know less about those, so I'll stick to my area of work in animal health and sanitary and phytosanitary measures. So we have... Um, very strict and new trading conditions and we have third country protocols applying to all exports now so that includes things like pre-notification by the importing party and inspection and issue of an export health certificate entry through designated border control posts and documentary checks and risk-based physical and um, sampling checks so all of these checks are new these goods previously circulated freely Um, and exporters also have to export from an approved establishment now these requirements are not unheard of and um, some of these processes are already in place for other trades to third countries so for example if you're exporting to the US you're already using HCs to export meat but I think the significance of the changes here are the fact that we've had such seamless trade for the past 40 years and our supply chains are so interconnected now and relied on just-in-time deliveries and seamless movement um, through the member states so that's probably a summary of the main changes I could go on but I'll, I'll pause. 
might be a good idea. I'm sure lots of people wish we could, boss. At what stage was the industry ready for all these changes? At what stage was it flagged up? Did it become absolutely clear? Yeah, I think that's difficult. We had the the UK government publish the border operating model uh, at the end of June. And I think that was the first indication, sorry, June last year, that was the first indication of the relationship that they were seeking through the negotiations, which was that third country to third country. So there was a very high level summary of these processes put out into the public domain. But I think the actual detail and waiting for things like third country listings, those kind of things came very late in the day and the actual detail that you really need to be able to fully prepare yourself and not to mention that we had this added complexity of the Northern Ireland protocol so we're not just talking about trade with the EU we're talking about trade that's going to Northern Ireland as well. Tom I don't want to belabor the point but it really doesn't sound like a power of laughs how are businesses reacting? Uh, to be honest, it's, it's been fairly challenging, Mark. Uh, you know, we had the deal announced on, on Christmas Eve, and I think the initial feeling was it's great, there's no tariffs or, or quotas there, because that was our fear, really. Uh, but after that deal was announced on Christmas Eve, the government then issued the additional guidance through the sort of holiday period and the run-up. So it, it's been difficult to, and Jill's mentioned the sort of complexity of the new processes with export health certificates and customs procedures, etc. Et so it's been it's been a steep learning curve. You know, beforehand, sending a pallet to, to Italy was probably the same as sending one from Glasgow to Edinburgh. It was a pretty straightforward job to do. So I think the main challenges, you know, have been around the additional costs uh, incurred with the export health certificates, customs procedures, transportation costs and, and, and some delays through through ports. But we we do have some unresolved challenges out there. You know, we've got issues with groupage, which is which is mixed loads from multiple exporters. And, you know, some of our some of our exporters at the minute have no route to market for their product. There's issues around the rules of origin and uh, potential tariffs there. And, you know, a, a big one for us is also, you know, we can't at the minute send fresh minced beef to the EU where we could normally do that without a problem. That now has to be frozen. And we've got certain conditions on export health certificates that, that we're still looking for a little bit of clarification from, from UK government on. So there are challenges out there, but product has been going to the EU and consignments have been delivered to customers. And it's getting slightly easier each week as uh, our exporters get used to the to the new processes. How are the markets bearing up? Well, it's a bit of a mixture just now because of the COVID implications. Uh, there's, there's volumes are down you know, to export markets. EU demand generally is well down behind pre-COVID levels and similar to the UK, I suppose that is, uh, the loss of food service has, has impacted. But EU retail is is still going along quite nicely. The UK market is doing well. We're really strong just now for, for beef and lamb and farm gate prices are strong. Pork is a little bit different. Prices are soft for a whole number of reasons. There's an impact from African swine fever in Germany. The EU market is well supplied. So there's, there's a bit of a backlog of, of pigs at the moment, which is pushing price down. So that's a market that is that is probably more challenged than, than beef and lamb. Are there businesses out there, and this question to either of you, are there businesses out there who have effectively given themselves an export holiday until they figure out how it's actually all going to operate? There's certainly been a little bit of that. We know of, of, of a few exporters who have just said, right, OK, we're going to hold back. We know there's going to be teething problems. They probably got a lot of product away just before uh, or at the end of the year just to, to buy them a bit of time to see how this is going to settle down. But we certainly know of, of, of businesses that have been, if not a holiday, pretty much scaled back, you know, probably doing only 25% maybe of the exports that they were doing pre-COVID and, and pre-Brexit. 
This question is maybe several weeks too late, Jill, but I mean, I'm sure businesses, most businesses are all over this already, but what practical steps do businesses need to take? Yeah, I think for those that are exporting, the place to start, I mentioned it earlier, probably is that UK border operating model that's online that gives the high level steps for export. I think once you've got your head around that and you can go into each step individually, so businesses need to make sure they've got their URI numbers, they need to understand the custom steps in addition to the FPS health steps. So there, there is guidance available online um, on the UK government's EU exit pages, on the Scottish government's EU exit pages, on TMS's um, EU exit pages. I think one of the main things for exporters is to really familiarise themselves with the actual export health certificate they need to use and what the health requirements are. Um, to actually export, you have to be registered on EH6C online system and your certifier has to be registered as well. You need to know what border control post you can send your commodity to. So you have to have all of this lined up before you can actually look at sending anything to the continent. On the flip side, for imports, um, we'll have new import systems online, which is the iPass system. So again, another system that you have to be registered for before you can actually import any of these goods into Great Britain. I think also worthwhile pointing out for, for trade to Great Britain to Northern Ireland, there is a dedicated trader support service line um, and there's also the movement assistance service. You can claim back costs for EHC charges, but that is only for Great Britain to Northern Ireland movements. It doesn't apply to EU trade. How much of this is actual, honest to God, practical help that's being offered here and how much of it is tea and sympathy? Uh, <laughs> it's a good question. I think the what we've found from stakeholders' feedback is that the help that they've received hasn't been good enough to date. And I think that's why we're now seeing government moving into accepting that there needs to be a task force to look at the detail of these issues, because despite best efforts by everyone, and we've seen businesses who are highly experienced exporters, they're still running into problems, and whether that's in IT systems or something else like groupage, which was mentioned earlier. So I think it hasn't been enough, and there's more to do. Tom, has anybody got any sense? I mean, without a crystal ball, it's difficult. But has anybody got any sense, or you know, has anybody sticking their neck over the line, saying, you know, yes, Brexit is affecting exports, but it'll be better by blah. Hey, probably not. I think there's still too many unanswered questions there, Mark, for someone to say yes. We definitely, we definitely know, you know, when this is going to be over, or when all the teething problems are. Are resolved. Uh, so it's, it's a bit of a difficult one to say, you know, we've got a clear date when this is all going to be resolved because there, there are issues there that are probably longer term fixes that will continue to give problems. So uh, that's a difficult one to say there's a set date or a line in the sand when everything will be fixed. There's, there, there's, there's sort of legacy issues which will rumble on for quite some time. What would you like to see, I mean, Jill discussed possibly a dedicated task force. I'd be interested to get your views on that. But what would you like to see happen to help the sector deal with Brexit? There's a few things. The vast majority of our red meat exports go to the EU, you know, predominantly over ninety percent for beef and lamb. And so we need to we need to fix this. I think first we need to iron out the issues that we're experiencing with the current processes. The UK government needs to work with the EU Commission to to minimise some of the non-tariff barriers that are out there. There's a line in the trade and cooperation agreement that states the EU and UK can work towards reducing the checks on sanitary and phytosanitary products. So that's the sort of animal health product checks that, that, that and this needs to happen in the interest of both parties, really. Longer term, we need to work towards a, a more integrated IT system, I think, for exports and customs processes. 
And, uh, you know, if we can work through these issues and, and some are not a quick fix by any means, then, then there's no reason why we can't continue to grow our exports into Europe and beyond, really. This would be bad enough if it was happening in you know a normal year. We're not in a normal year. We haven't been in a normal year since March last year. So how confident are you that the necessary changes will be made in time to keep businesses afloat? Well, I think government realised the extent of the problem. There's, there's certainly got a lot of people working behind the scenes at DEFRA to try and uh, try and pull some of these issues and uh, out and actually get a spotlight on them and get them fixed. So there are teams working on it. I think uh, I think the, now this task force that was mentioned is really trying to get to the bottom of some issues. And I think when some of the checks on EU products that are being imported into the UK start to kick in, in sort of April and July this year, when we start actually reciprocating some of the checks of product coming in, it may focus the minds a little bit more and, and hopefully we, we can get to some solutions fairly quickly at that point. On that point, Jill, undoubtedly we've seen changes so far, but we haven't seen all the changes yet. I've heard this period described as the phony war. What do you think will happen when the UK starts to introduce import controls? Yeah, it's, um, it's a really interesting question. I think a lot of lessons and insight can be learned from the application of all the expert, sorry, export controls on the 1st of January. All of those came in at the same time. Um, and obviously, I can only speak for SPS import controls here, but I think the, the phasing through April and July, we've already had our first phase in January, um, but that didn't see much change. It's only live animals that have to pre-notify. In April, we'll need to have pre-notification and export health certificates for products of animal origin. And then in July, things should be coming into border control posts, as I outlined earlier, for those commodities. So I think by that stage, the, the impact of and the red tape will be felt by both the importer and the exporter. It's quite heavily one-sided at the moment, but these changes are coming very soon. We're already at the end of January, and I think it might help to speed up the establishment of things like the FPS committee that was mentioned there under the, the TCA, if there is a will on both sides to try and have a look at the flow of goods and review the import and export controls. But um, yeah, it's, it's difficult to tell. Is there any reason, Tom, you think, why the European Union would be minded to give us an easy time? It's maybe not an easy time, Mark. It's just the processes that are in place. These are the rules that we cho- we chose when we chose Brexit. This is this is the consequences. So uh, I don't think they'll choose to give us an easy ride. But they've said this is the this is the conditions that you have chosen to deal with in terms of trade. So these that there are implications for that. Uh, now we've seen what those implications are. I think the EU and the UK must look at that situation and say, well, you know, for such close trading partners, you know, the current. Uh, rules and regulations around this trade really sort of prohibit trade uh, in some ways. So, you know, they've both been minded for, to to generate and foster more trade in both directions. I think they're both minded to think, well, we could make this a little bit simpler and it would be to the benefit of both parties. Did people actually choose this? You know, and I'm not, I honestly really don't want to rehash Brexit. But when you think about it, it was a simple in-out referendum. The implications, to my mind, were never really discussed beforehand. Is this coming as a terrible shock to folk now? I think if you look at back at some of the, the quotes from, from members of the UK government, they stated fairly frequently that there wouldn't be any non-tariff barriers. But, you know, that's now what we're seeing. So uh, it's certainly difficult. And the message has changed as we went through the campaign. So I don't really know if people were 100% sure what they were voting for anyway, because things have changed so much not just since the vote, because that was a fairly long time ago, but how we're actually going to implement it and 
all of the issues that that we had around getting a deal and what would the conditions of that deal be. So, you know, things changed in the in the sort of political landscape so often that I, I'm not particularly sure if people actually knew what they were going to get at the end of the day. The landscape is changing rapidly for businesses, Jill, but it's also changing rapidly for your team. How are you all finding it? Yeah, it's been a, a challenging year. Um, it's obviously the, the big changes are for the businesses and the exporters, but internally in Scottish government and working with youth government, there's been a lot of changes for us as well. Obviously, now that we're outside of the EU, we're no longer relying on the EU to make our animal health laws, for example. Before we um, contributed to those laws and voted on them, um, and essentially we were just implementing what the EU had already set out. Now we've got a situation where we've been given back these powers and um, the different administrations and we're trying to operate under these new frameworks and agreed ways of working, uh, dispute resolution mechanisms, and those mechanisms are really yet to be tested. Uh, we've also got the implications of the Internal Market Bill and we've seen the UK take its place at the World Trade Organization now. So our rules can now be challenged and are open to scrutiny by everyone else. And although we've left the EU, we're still going to be heavily influenced by by their laws. And um, those that listen to the podcast and are aware of the new animal health law that's coming, they'll be aware that we're going to have to change some of our legislation as a result of this new law. So it, it's a completely new working relationship in terms of governments and how we're working with the UK government and other development administrations. But now also through this this trade cooperation agreement with the EU, that will be how we arrange ourselves and our relationship for the future and how we um, engage with the EU moving forward. Tom, this is a time of flux of enormous change. Is it possible for businesses to somehow future-proof themselves? I think for the here and now, Mark, they're just trying to get through this difficult this difficult position uh, that they're in and, and deal with the, challenge that, the challenges that they've got. I think once we get through this this period and, you know, we make sure that we get back to the levels of trade that 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 we had. Uh, you know, the playing field now. We know we know what the landscape and playing field looks like. So there are certainly opportunities out there for for exporters, and there's a new market's going to be coming on stream in the next few years. So there's opportunities there to to get themselves ready. And some of our businesses have been doing that. They've really been looking over the past few years to markets out with the EU. To, to future-proof themselves because they knew there was challenges coming with Europe. Uh, there's obviously growing markets for beef, lamb and pork around the world. And uh, the more that we, we look at those markets and uh, we look at the opportunities in those markets, then there's certainly opportunities for businesses to, to certainly make themselves uh, a lot more robust in terms of not dealing with the one main market of the EU. So there are certainly opportunities to strengthen uh, businesses in the, with the export side. Well, that's good to hear. Um, Tom Gibson from QMS, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Mark. And Jill, Jill Barber from the Scottish Government's Animal Health and Welfare Division, again, thank you for yours. Thank you. Next week, we're going to be taking a look at the bigger picture, including what the possible implications might be for policy. Until then, thank you for downloading this podcast. I'm Mark Stephen. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to the Quality Meet Scotland podcast. For news and to listen back to previous episodes of the podcast, visit qmscotland.co.uk. For Scotch beef, Scotch lamb and specially selected pork recipe videos and inspiration, visit www.scotchkitchen.com.
or follow Scotch Kitchen on Facebook, Instagram or Twitter.